The content discussed in the Left Behind series and therefore this podcast includes emotional trauma, human suffering, extreme violence, gore, as well as hurtful caricatures and stereotypes of marginalized groups, and is in no way reflective of the host's personal views or beliefs. But we beeped out the cuss words in case you want to listen in front of your mom. Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. Oh my God! The future has come to pass. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of I Survived the Rapture. We're that podcast that analyzes the Left Behind novel series so that uh, you don't have to. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Bazell. And I'm your ecumenical fanboy, Gavin Russell. Okay. So, guys, just gonna give you a heads up before we start the episode. I am very tired. <laughs> nah, but really, I have been up since uh, 4 o'clock this morning. Uh, not to give too many details, um, I've got a loved one who was in the hospital, and uh, everything's okay now, thankfully. But uh, we're going to get into this one, and uh, I have still prepared for the episode. All the information is in my head. I'm going to try to make it come out of my mouth during this episode. <laughs> make brain meat into vocal words. Yes. Got this. <laughs> I'm going like to have to lean on you for this one. I have a little anecdote I want to share before we get started today. Okay. Our, uh, one of the, the guys in our intro, old Dylan, who goes, Ah, survive the rapture! This is actually a book from when he was in high school. There's a kid that was reading it, and they got into talking, and he started, uh, like, making fun of the book. And he's like, oh, yeah? Well, like, you don't know what this book's about. It has, like, a lot of cool stuff in it. And Dylan, stoic-faced, points at the book and goes, huh, ass, ass, in, and walks away. <laughs> <laughs> got him! Got him! Oh, no, there's nothing you can say to that. Just got to take that one on the chin. Yeah, you just, you just, you just take the L and go home. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so where did we leave off last time? It was chapter, end of chapter eight. Zion and crew are at their little safe house and they're looking out the window and they see the 50 bajillion horsemen. That's right, no, it's still big horsey hours yeah. now. Yeah, it's okay. still big horsey hours and that's actually where we go into chapter nine and start now. Right, yeah, so Zion looks out and kind of gawks at the horsemen a little bit, kind of has his little nerd out moment. Almost immediately, we cut back into the plane, into the yes. 216, right? Yeah, where everyone's kind of like coughing and like starting to asphyxiate because there's just a smell of sulfur, gas that's a byproduct of these horsemen. Fire and smoke and sulfur. Those yes. are the things that Revelation says that these horsemen are given the power to kill with. Now, it's not the only thing they kill with, and they're going to get creative with their kills in a little bit. Yeah, people are dying on the plane. They're suffocating. Weirdly, all the smoke alarms aren't engaging. What a weird thing. Yeah, so it's supernatural smoke. It's magic smoke. They have to emergency land, so they can't make it all the way to Johannesburg. Ah, so gotcha. think about it. They're at the top of the African continent. They're mm -hmm. like just leaving kind of the Middle Eastern region. And they're like, uh, we can't make it all the way to Johannesburg with all this. We're going to have to put down in Khartoum. So Khartoum is the capital of Sudan. Mm-hmm. And things are getting worse, not only like on the ground, but also in the air. 
unbelieving pilots are also dying. So it's kind of a repeat of some of the rapture circumstances. Mm -hmm. Planes are dropping out of the sky, except this time it's the unbelievers that are getting targeted instead of the believers. And they even refer to the rapture a lot of times. Like even the characters, like we haven't seen this much death since the rapture, essentially. Yeah, it's throwing the world into chaos in a much more random, scattered way than like the earthquake or the wars or really even the robo scorpions because like the scorpions they got everybody yeah this one it's not getting every unbeliever it's just getting a third of them mm -hmm. so it's a third of them and it's also going a lot quicker because the scorpions didn't kill anybody these people are absolutely just dead go to hell do not pass go do not collect 200 dollars. yeah they confirm that this is our second class of demons that is being unleashed upon the earth as well they speculate on that do you think they're demons or do you think that they're something else i i think that they're demons but it's again that that scenario where like whatever satan throws out god will just turn around and use that to his advantage they're chimera enough that I would say that they are uh, supposed to be demonic. Like but. a twisting of creation. Yeah. Like something that God did not make. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Because they were partially invisible, it kind of had almost an angelic quality to it for me. I can see that. Because in the Bible, in a couple of instances, you get the angel with the flaming sword that a mortal person cannot see. Mm -hmm. So with the fire and the smoke and the swords and the war horses and everything, that just evoked that imagery for me a little bit. Gotcha. And these books, uh, well, because we've already seen an angel before through a telescope, so they're working with things a little bit differently. I guess. Yeah, we'll have to, um, at some point, if I ever get an excuse to bring it up, we're going to have to bring up the story of the angel with the flaming sword and the talking donkey. Oh, gotcha. Bible. That's a whole thing. That's like from Saul, right? That's like Saul's origin arc? Uh, no. Okay, different donkey <clears throat> it's then. A different guy. Balaam. <laughs> yeah, Balaam gotcha. is the character. Wow, I pulled that one out. Thanks, Sunday school. <laughs> As is usual, every time a judgment happens, we get a good old-fashioned Nikolai Carpathia television address to drop the party line and tell everybody what's going on yeah he says the the situation will soon be under control we have mobilized every resource meanwhile i asked citizens of the global community to report suspicious activity particularly the manufacture or transport of noxious agents sadly we have reason to believe that this massacre of innocent lives is being perpetrated by the religious descents to whom we have extended every courtesy though they cross us at every turn we have defended their right to dissent yet they continue to see global community as an enemy they feel they have the right to maintain an intolerant close-minded cult that ex excludes everyone who disagrees you have the right to live healthy peaceful and free while I shall always remain a pacifist, I pledge to rid the world of this cult, beginning with the Jerusalem Tusum, who even now express no remorse about the widespread loss of life that resulted for this attack. Okay, hang on a second. I gotta stop you. All right. Because of that phrase. Which one? The Jerusalem Tusum? Barf! <laughs> Burr, burr, burr. that's an awful 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 name did he say that last time yeah i think that's been dropped a few times oh now. get <laughs> i hate that so much like you were supposed to be this amazing orator that could hold 
the entire world in thrall and Jerusalem twosome is the best you've got. Go away forever. Dude. And even Chloe's like fed up with it. Shit, Cause he's like, I'm going to have to ask for forgiveness for the glee. I will feel when this man's due time arrives. I know like, <laughs> dude, I'm so over him. He's still one of my favorite characters. Notice I'm saying one of now and not my favorite because the quality of writing on Nikolai is starting to dip. In my opinion, only gets worse as mm -hmm. the series goes on. We're going to get a moment, though, in this section that is my, one of my favorite Nikolai moments. So just oh, wait. Mm. Just wait. <laughs> so we get a little more Nikolai stuff, but Eli and Moisha have a few choice words to say. Um, and I think you can read a little excerpt from yep. that. Woe to the enemies of the Most High God, they said. Woe to the cowards who shake their fist at their creator and are now forced to flee his wrath. We beseech you, snakes and vipers, to see even this plague as more than judgment, yea, is another attempt to reach you by a loving God who has run out of patience. There is no more time to woo you. You must hearken to this call to see that that is he who loves you. Turn to the God of your fathers while there is still time, for the day will come when time shall be no more. Okay, so there's a few things that I want to point out there. The snakes and vipers thing, mm -hmm. definitely a Jesus callback. Yep. I had, John the Baptist as well. John the Baptist too? Yeah. Okay, cool. I actually had a clergyman tell me one time, I think he was a Catholic priest, um, or at least been in the priesthood, that translation of brood of vipers, like Jesus calls the Pharisees or snakes and vipers, mm -hmm. was considered like a slur. Ah. Like that was the level of insult I think I was asking this particular person why, as a clergyman, he swore. Like, why he dropped F-bombs. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, Jesus said worst in context, so. Oh, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> that, I, I've never researched to see if that was entirely true or if he was just making a joke. Mm -hmm. But that was the example that he gave. He said snakes and vipers or brood of vipers was tantamount to calling somebody a mother. Ah, oh, okay, gotcha. One of my other favorite things there, Carpathia ends his address by vowing that he's going to handle Eli and Moisha, and he asks his followers to keep the faith. Ah. a boy. <laughs> Turn their words back on him. But I wanted to ask you a question. Yeah. They've talked about the due time. They've talked about these being the last days. We've had Zion's Boomer posting about how terrible and evil the world has gotten. Why now? Now, we know why, because that's the time period in which Tim and Jerry chose to write their books in which the rapture happens. Divorce it from the context of the books being written. Why has God chosen, you know, 1998 to like 2000 or whatever to be the time? So you're asking me, if you're at, okay, so let's- I'm going to say you're a theologian okay, in theologian. this world. I guess, well, I, if I was a theologian in this universe, like, oh, it's approaching 2000 years after Christ has come, so that's like a big- significant thing the millennium is uh, is about to hit so like that's where like my head would be in that scenario is like oh 2000 is such a significant number and we're like crossing this hill almost and that's why it's happening oh dude i think that that's a big one yeah i don't know how much time you spent in supermarket checkout lines around 1999 <laughs> i was nary a babe at that point <laughs> I'm showing my age here, guys. But I can specifically remember, like, Weekly World News and, like, Star Magazine, like, all those tabloids used to say the crazy, like, Bat Boy stuff. Mm -hmm. We're talking about how the rapture was going to happen in 2000. Yeah. And people ate it up. Like, it was a weird, like, turning of an epoch. So I think yeah. there was something in the air that there was the ending of an age and the beginning of another one. And that kind of goes back to dispensationalism, mm -hmm. which is something that we've kind of hinted at, but we've never really discussed. We're not experts. 
I'm not an expert on anything. It's not Metal Gear Solid. But to kind of give you guys a crash course on dispensationalism versus I think the counter would be covenant doctrine. Dispensationalism is a way of describing a religious worldview, usually a Christian one, in which God comes along and kind of dispenses more canon and more information in different ages at different times and kind of changes the rules. Yeah. Changes the rules rather than just adding them. Covenant doctrine, from what I understand, goes very much off of our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever types of thought, Mm -hmm. which is in the Bible. But with the dispensationalist doctrine, the passing of ages is very important. So when the rapture happened, we left one age, one period of dispensation, and we entered a new one. Gotcha. And that's actually where the core of a lot of rapture theology, they call it premillennial, pre-tribulation dispensationalism. And I think on that note, another, if I was a theologian in this time trying to make a case for, okay, this is when the end of the world's happening, I got to look at like the events that have preceded. Like uh, in the 40s, there was a giant war that was like monolithic between good and evil. After that point, technology started racing off at unprecedented levels. So like all of this stuff together kind of gives like, oh, things are going into a new age. So uh, with that, all this other stuff is going to follow. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of media and a lot of fiction that look at the creation of the atomic bomb Yes, as a flashpoint for, all right, we are either going to ascend into a higher, more enlightened age or we're going to destroy ourselves. Yeah, and that's even like a beat that I like to explore in art recently as well within the last few years, just because like the fact that we now have the ability to destroy entire cities in like a snap of an instant does kind of harken back to like a lot of like biblical stuff. Yeah, so, like, it's a wrath lot of God kind yeah. of stuff. So people will definitely be making parallels with that. Like you can consume a city in a ball of fire. Yeah, I'm about to nerd self-report real quick. Okay, go for it. You ever seen that Magic the Gathering card, Wrath of God? Yes. It's just an atomic explosion. Oh. Yeah, it literally looks like a it looks like a nuke gun. Going off. Oh. <laughs> so if we think about like that kind of imagery and that kind of anxiety that goes in, and you talked about Tim LaHaye fighting in World War II and like living through that, I'm sure that that's how that dude felt. Like, yeah. Especially like during the Cold War and all that. There's a whole lot that goes into why the religious right probably thought that the end of the world was at hand Mm -hmm. because you and I have looked at tons of different like sects and cults throughout the ages that have been like, Oh no, 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 the rapture is about to happen. Mm -hmm. It was happening all the way back with like the Anabaptists in like the 1500s and before different interpretations of everything inside revelation and how it all comes together. But this specific cultural moment at the turning of the last millennium was just hot with that sort of idea. Mm Mm-hmm. So we haven't gotten to go on a digression like that in a while. Bringing it back. That's one thing I like about this particular section is we don't have a bunch of and then this happens action scenes. Mm -hmm. So we're going to get to pick some stuff apart. But to move the story along a little bit, Mac, Leon, Abdullah, the whole Condor 216 crew, they land in Khartoum. They kind of get treated by EMTs. And we're reminded that Mac's in pretty rough shape. Like he's all cut up. His ear almost got sliced off when he hit the control panel, which still kind of makes me go. And they kind of start reminding us of what's going on with the horsemen because we're back to Ray. We're reminded that believers can see the horsemen. Unbelievers cannot. And they start describing the horsemen are getting creative with their kills. Oh, and they're starting to try to get some style points. Uh, the snake tails are biting people. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, so they're slicing and dicing. They're breathing fire. They're breathing smoke and sulfur. But then, like, if they miss you, the snake tail will come along and get you. <laughs> so we got some good old-fashioned sad boy Ray moments here. He's just kind of like, man, I don't know how much more of this we can take. And his thoughts turn again back to Leah. Mm-hmm. So he starts talking about Leah a little bit. Boy, oh boy, the Leah stuff in here is just weird. He thinks Leah is too strident and opinionated and then thinks he might be sexist for thinking that. <laughs> There's a little passage in there. Can you find that Let's real quick? See. Did you highlight it? Still wasn't sure what he thought about Leah. She was difficult to identify with. Something about her seemed younger and more naive than her years. They had been through a horrifying ordeal together, and yet his image of her as too strident and opinionated had not faded. He had been moved by her salvation account and did not doubt her sincerity. Was it sexist to be repulsed by her straightforwardness? Would he pass off the same as mere spunk in a man? He had hoped not. Uh, first of all, yes. Second of all, yes. <laughs> it's it's one of those weird things where like, hey, if we call it out, it's not bad. This is a weird section with that kind of like where they'll try to like cover their own chauvinism a little bit. Oh, yeah. When they put the words in Leah's mouth, especially which yeah. happens later. So we do learn Ray's age. Oh, how, how old is he again? 46. 46. So that would have put him at probably about 43-ish yeah. when uh, the rapture happened. Younger than I thought. Yeah. Honestly, younger. I would have thought he was in his 50s by now. Okay, I would have thought so, too. Yeah, he's a 46-year-old grandpa. Elder uh, Ray. <laughs> Elder Ray. He's probably starting to get those, like, Mr. Fantastic, like, white hairs at his temples, you mm-hmm. know? And we get another reminder that the halfway point of the tribulation is in four months. Ah. Now, this next section, we're going to kind of, like, fast forward through because, honestly, it kind of reads like filler. Mm-hmm. It's some more David stuff. Basically, he's taking a head count of the dead at the New Babylon complex, and he can't find Annie. Well, it turns out during the uh, emergency with the horsemen, Annie accidentally locked herself in a storage container. <laughs> yeah. I just wrote, wah, wah, wah. He doesn't even, like, notice until he just hears Annie banging SOS, like, into, like, some wall. And he's like, wait, do you hear that? I think my girlfriend's trapped. And it goes nowhere. Yeah. Uh, It goes nowhere, except they start kind of having a little tiff at the end of it. And David specifically thinks he fought hard to attribute her sudden unattractiveness to stress. Oh, I don't like her when she gets mad. She's less hot. (laughs) I don't like the uppity ones. I think he even, like, at some point, like, even says, even when you're angry, I still love you. And she's like, okay, good. Glad to know that. Okay, cool, 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 cool. Thanks, Dave. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) So that's going to take us into chapter 10. Mac and the gang finally make it to Johannesburg. That's a pretty long flight. Like, going from Khartoum to Johannesburg. So they've had a pretty uneventful flight, or at least nothing that Jerry feels like he needs to tell us. We get a little bit more of the conspiracy stuff. Leon goes ahead and calls ahead to Ngumo to set up their meeting aboard the plane in about five minutes once they touch down. Yeah. So as a refresher for last time, there's a few players here. So you've got Fortunato, who is going to Africa for this meeting. You have Carpathia, who is not present, even though people think he's supposed to be. And then you have Ngumo and Rehoboth. Ngumo is the former secretary general of the UN who stepped down to make way for Carpathia. Rehoboth is the ambassador, I think, from Sudan. I think so. Who has been made one of the Ten Kings. The understanding was that Nguma was going to get that position, but he did not. Yes. So that's where the chess pieces are set up right now. We overhear Leon talking to his aides, and it turns out his aides also love kind of the global community power game. They're like, man, we're going to rub it in this guy's face when he comes in here to meet Carpathia, and it's just you. 
<laughs> I would think somebody with an ego like Leon's would take offense to that, but he doesn't. He's no. just too like he's just rubbing his hands together like. <laughs> So uh, they land, and they're waiting for Nagumo to board, but Abdullah looks up and just goes, wait, that, that guy out there, that, that's not Nagumo. And why does he have a really heavy bag? <laughs> because it has guns in it. <laughs> yeah, so all these three guys that are walking to the plane just all of a sudden pulls out, like, a bunch of guns, and Leon's like, go, go, take off now, now, now. Hey, Gav, would you possibly call these guys approaching the plane Assassins. <laughs> Some guys get out of the car. They start opening fire on the plane. Mac pulls kind of a cool stunt where he like drifts the plane to the side and blasts them with the backdraft from the engine and they go tumbling down the runway, which like good thinking. Yeah. But then more assassins drive up in a Jeep and they're all like shooting at them. They specifically shoot the landing gear out of the plane. There's no escaping. And they notice that no emergency personnel are showing up. No cops, no GC guards, no morale monitors. No one is coming to help them. Ah. So this is an obvious setup. Bullets are ripping through the plane. Everybody's hitting the deck. Uh, poor Carl the cook from last time uh, takes a bullet and he dies. They try to call Ngumo. They get his secretary only to learn on the phone she is currently trying to dodge bullets. Ngumo has been killed and then she's killed on the phone and the line goes dead. Mac is at the end of his rope, doesn't know what to do, and he calls in a mayday. Mm-hmm specifically announcing that there are believers on board. Ah. Blowing his cover. Yep. To try and just get anybody to respond because nobody's coming to help him. And Leon at this point is also like starting to break down. He's like, you know what? I, I know you guys aren't goody two shoes. Do you have like a gun on board? Come on, like just pull out whatever you got. And he's like, I do have a gun, but I won't tell Leon. I had forgotten all about that because apparently they weren't allowed to have guns because of the whole pacifism GC thing. Mm -hmm. But it was a ray tactic. They kept guns in the cargo hold. Yeah. They can't really get to the cargo hold right now. Uh, because somebody throws a firebomb at the plane and the plane catches on fire. <laughs> As they're getting shot at, Mac takes a bullet, Abdullah takes a bullet, but like in one of those action movie places like the shoulder or the thigh where you can like still keep kicking. Mm -hmm. And they grab Leon and do like a movie explosion where they're jumping off the plane as it's starting to explode. Land on the runway and Mac's like, I'm dead, I'm dead, I'm dead, I died, I'm going to heaven, I'm dead. And then looks up and all of the assassins have burst into flames. <laughs> so the horsemen show up just in time to take out the assassins. And we kind of find out maybe why in okay. this next section, why they showed up just in the nick of time. Um, because we're back to Ray, and he hears someone crying in the safe house. And it turns out that it's Zion. Yep. And Zion is crying because it was impressed upon him that someone in the Tribulation Force was in danger and that they needed a hedge of protection prayed around them. Ah. So a couple of Christian memes in here. One of them is the hedge of protection. Did you ever have anybody use those words, pray a hedge of protection around ne you? Never those words, but it, I, I know kind of like what you're referring to. They'll lay your hands on you like, Lord, please have your protection on this person, yada, 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 that sort of thing. But hedge of protection, no, I haven't heard that. That was a specific phrase I heard a lot in church, like praying a hedge of protection around a person or around a vehicle, around a house, that kind of thing. It's like a ward. Yeah. Basically, Zion also says, God, teach me how to pray. Hmm. 
which is a callback to something that a lot of even non-Christians will be aware of, Luke chapter 11. You know what's in Luke chapter 11? What's in Luke chapter 11? That would be the Lord's Prayer. Ah, okay. When the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. Okay. So the Lord's Prayer being the model for how one should pray to God, all the little bits you should include, sort of the model platonic ideal of a prayer. Okay. So we find out that Zion prayed at exactly the right time. God sent the horseman to protect Mac and Abdullah. Hmm. Is that how God works? Is he a vending machine? Is that how prayer works? We could be here all day discussing the finer theological points of that one. <laughs> because that gets into a lot of like divine plan stuff. But in the fiction here, that seems to be how Tim and Jerry want to communicate it. Yeah. So Mac and Abdullah, they watch the horsemen massacre all of the assassins on the runway, sort of Leon standing up, brushing himself off. And I noticed something here that's kind of offensive. Okay, what, what is it? So they refer to Leon, and I know you had your headcanon of him as Adam Conover. Yeah. But we get a description of him as thick. <laughs> he thick. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, Leon, where'd you get that cake from the, ki <laughs> the global community kitchen, boy? Thick and swarthy. What does swarthy mean? So what does swarthy mean? Okay, so swarthy is kind of a euphemistic term for darker in skin tone. Uh... And it's not a word you hear very often. And given his last name, I am assuming that he is Italian. So I now in my head canon, I think I might have the perfect casting for Leon. For Leon and also because the guy in real life is, is kind of a piece of you know who Robert Davi is? I do not. All right, so he's an actor. He was in Die Hard. Um, he's one of the FBI agents from Die Hard. Mm -hmm. Agent Johnson and Special Agent Johnson. He plays Jake in The Goonies. He's been in a bunch of other stuff too, but he's an Italian-American actor. Now he's like a huge like Trump supporter, weird like stolen election QAnon right-wing guy. Mm -hmm. And he goes on YouTube specifically and does these big, long right-wing rants. Um, he is a crazy person, like of the Gary Busey variety. <laughs> oh, my. Yeah, he's a nut. And I'm going to show you a picture of him here real quick. Hang okay. on. That's my Leon. Oh, my God. That is Leon. Oh, my God. <laughs> right there. There you go. That's him. That's my Leon Fortunato. Oh, see, there's another pic. Okay. Yeah, that's him with, uh, I think that's Benicio Del Toro. Oh. Yeah, it's from License to Kill. Yeah, I forgot he was in License to Kill. Um, Yeah, Robert Davi. In a lot of movies you've probably seen, but turned into a huge right-wing nut job. Mm. Or maybe he was already, I don't know. Yes, Robert Davi is my headcanon for Leon Fortunato. <laughs> um, but still, referring to someone as swarthy, you always want to raise an eyebrow at that one. Right. But he thanks Mac and Abdullah for saving his life. And that's actually going to have implications later on because they, they really did save his life. So they have just upped their stock in the GC. So the GC now sees these guys as heroes. Okay. But the poor Condor. The beautiful Condor. His Excellency's pride and joy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Leon does a lot of whinging about the fact that the Condor was destroyed. Who can say where the road goes? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and close out 10. So we get Zion's latest message, uh, decries Enigma Babylon. Mm -hmm. Basically saying like, hey, in case you guys didn't know already, in case I haven't talked about it enough, this one world faith thing is bad news. They talk about tolerance. Well, we can't tolerate that. And it's very bad. I wanted to ask you something else. Do you know the origins of Enigma Babylon, where it shows up in Revelation? No. Revelation chapter 17 and 18. All right. Um, let's go ahead and bust that out in the old ESV there. 
Let's see, Revelation chapter uh, 17, you said? Go through 6. We don't need to read all of it. So right, 17, one 17, 1 through 6. All right. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. He carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. It had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Okay, can you skip to chapter 18 and go from 1 to verse 3? Yes. After I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Fallen is Babylon the Great. Mm-hmm. Spoilers. <laughs> See how where it talks about, um, like, the great mystery, I believe? Yes. Yeah, so was- um, there's a little bit of history that goes into that. Okay. What's another name for a mystery? Enigma. Yes. Do you know what a mystery cult is? Uh, uh, Did you ever study those in high school, like, in world history? No, I haven't. So mystery cults were something that was pretty big during the Roman Empire. Okay. So you kind of had your mainline Roman faith where you worshipped the Roman gods, you worshipped the pantheon, and the way sacrifices and the ceremonies, the festivals that were held were kind of run by the state, sanctioned by the state, and there was even a role within the Roman government that was in charge of sort of dispensing out the spiritual leadership Mm -hmm. for Rome. Uh, It was a role that Julius Caesar even held for a little while, sort of being the spiritual father of the state. Anything that was outside of that that maybe focused on one specific god or maybe a specific demigod or a monster or something like that was considered a mystery cult Mm -hmm. because a lot of them had their own esoteric rituals and they had their own ceremonies and they had these things that were kept secret. Christianity was considered a mystery cult. Ah. I don't know if that's an exact reference because, again, we're translating from Greek when we're doing Revelation, but it stuck in my brain. I was like, I wonder if that has anything to do with Christianity's status as a mystery cult under the Romans. And that might be why the word mystery was in there because that word has a lot to do with esoteric religious knowledge. Yes, I know, especially in Catholicism, they're always talking about mysteries and uh, like wanting to celebrate in Christ mystery. And Behold, stuff like I that. tell you a mystery. Yeah. Because we've talked about that is the whore of Babylon, mm-hmm. which you guys have no doubt heard in pop culture. You might have even heard us say at a time or two. Put a pin in that because we're going to do a little bit of who's who later in the prophecies, I think even in this section. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to adapt some stuff that we've thought about some previous characters. 
So keep that in your head. So Zion continues his message back to the story. We learn that the horsemen were bound at the river Euphrates, which is right out of Revelation. We've talked about how important the Tigris and the Euphrates are. And Zion does a little math, talks about how only 50% of the world's population will be left. That's including rapture. That's including all the other judgments. By the end of the horsemen's rampage, we're looking at the population cut by half. And then he says something that I just said, wow, okay. God may be winnowing out the incorrigibles who will never come to him. That is some very shaky theological ground for me. Like, even if I cast myself back to evangelical Christian Shane from a long time ago, even then I would have struggled with that. Like, oh, God knows you're never going to come to him, so he's just going to kill you anyway. That smacks a little bit too much of predestination for my denomination that I grew up in. I was like, "Mm, I don't know about that. That just, uh, that yells Calvinism to me as well. 100%. Which even in my household, like Calvinism was not some, like whenever I would bring up Calvin, like, oh, he's not a good guy. Don't look at his uh, theology. Same here. Yeah. Even though as um, Western American Protestants of European descent, we are indelibly affected by Calvinism. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't know. That was kind of uh, uh, like one of the first almost schisms in my household because I'm like, well, if this is all true, why wouldn't everything kind of be predestined? And they didn't like that. And like every time we say the word work ethic, Mm -hmm. we're essentially quoting Calvin. Really? Oh, yeah. You ever heard of the Calvinist work ethic? Uh, I've heard of the Protestant work ethic. That's where it comes from, Calvin. Oh, Mm -hmm. okay. Yep. Learn something new every day. He was Scottish, right? I think so. You're predestined, <laughs> and if you're not, you're going to hell. Oh my God! On my way here, I was finishing up the the last battle because I've been uh, reading listening through. to it. Yeah, yeah, because uh, I've been going through the uh, C.S. Uh, Lewis books. Tumnus describes the universe like an onion, and I <laughs> and like that was all I was thinking. <laughs> Especially because he's played by Scottish actor James <laughs> McAvoy. <laughs> It's got layers. It got layers, and each layer is bigger than the last. (laughs) Uh, James McAvoy for Shrek in the reboot. So we finish this with more mentions of idol worship, sexual immorality, sorcery, all being applauded in the new tolerant society. And I got to say, again, what? I would love for them to have some digressions where there are actual, like, idol worship and sorcery and all this that's happening. Just like, you know, at parties. Yeah. More than like a Ouija board or like like a tarot reading at a party. Like I want like, oh yeah, we're going to go to like Pam and Terry's house tonight. And we thought we'd sacrifice a goat. Yeah, they got the Moloch, uh, <laughs> the, the, the Moloch shrine in their basement. We really, really digging into. They got like nice like hors d'oeuvres that they serve around it too. Like really great. Yeah. No, man, don't, don't talk about Moloch. They're going to think we're in on it. Oh no. <laughs> we're going to get cued. <laughs> and then we end... The, the address and the chapter with if we reject God's love, we can only fall under his judgment. Oof. You guys have heard us talk enough about the abusive boyfriend dynamic with God here. The hits keep on coming. And so do the chapters. Yep. Because it's time to get into chapter 11. So they just go ahead and lay on that Rehoboth was behind the assassination. Um, he had kind of gotten fed up with Carpathia. He may have even been in bed with Matthews on that because we know the tension between Carpathia and Matthews is rising, Mm -hmm. but they don't really have a lot of time to dwell on it because another jet lands on the Johannesburg runway and it's got an Australian flag on the tail and the words fair dinkum on the side. (laughs) 
I had to look up what fair dinkum meant. What? I knew it was an Australian thing, but I had to look up what, what it meant. What does it mean? It means like good, good. Oh. It, like it's two words for good. Oh. Like fair yeah. in the old English sense. And then dinkum also means good. So it's like, oh yeah, that good, good. Okay. And so this husband and wife jump out of the plane to help. They introduce themselves as Dart and Liv or Olivia because welcome to Left Behind. Can't have normal names. Oh, they called it a mayday with believers on board. Oh, no. <laughs> Looks like your plane's on fire. We're believers, all right. Not ashamed of it. Even you guys hoodwinked to guess here. Call me Dot. First name's not important. <laughs> We're doing bad voices right now, but it's going to make sense in a minute. Leon actually mentions that the believers can see the horses. And I'm like, did he get a briefing? <laughs> like, we know for a fact that Carpathia is reading the book. Yeah. Like, he's following Zion. And Leon even says he's accessing Zion's site. So as much as we kind of rag on Leon for being a boob, like, at least he kind of keeps abreast of what's going on. Yeah. Which makes him an okay bad guy. Not a, not a great one, but he's okay. And then this Dart character just starts needling Leon. Yeah. Like, will not address him by his title. Like, he calls him Mr. F. Yeah. I'm going to tell you right now, I do not like this character. I find him incredibly grating, and he is going to be in the rest of the section. And I think on from there, we're going to learn more about him. Do not like this guy. And sadly, it's not the same Australian guy from last time. No, it's nope. not. We thought we might get that guy, but that guy's still off selling Bibles somewhere. <laughs> So he's really trying to get under Leon's skin. He drops the whole, I'll read the book, we win thing. And Leon just, just, just doesn't even have time for them. Yeah. And so he's going off to get treated. All of a sudden, Dart drops his accent and introduces, like, actually, we're Dwayne and Trudy Tuttle from Oklahoma. What a name. Equally bad names. Yeah. You even had a fake name, and even your fake name was bad. <laughs> your real name is almost worse. Um, they're co-op people. Yeah. So they are actually kind of under Chloe's purview. And they start talking a little bit. They're like, man, that was close. Like, we saw you guys' marks and figured the big man might be with you. And then we didn't realize until we got close that it was the false prophet. <laughs> we got to stop. Yep. Emergency meeting. <laughs> <laughs> So, false prophet. Yeah, Leon's been officially cast as one of the Revelation figures. Yeah, and we said in a previous episode that Matthews was kind of playing that role. Yeah. And there's a reason why I chose those words, because I knew eventually we were going to get to Leon. Mm -hmm. Leon is the raised from the dead figure. He has experienced a supernatural resurrection at the hands of Nikolai. He is the John the Baptist almost. Yeah. Or the Apostle Peter almost. He's actually got more in common with Peter mm -hmm. than he does with John the Baptist. But he is the primary witness already proclaiming Carpathia's divinity. Yeah. So that's why he is considered the false prophet. As far as the big three, Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, your trinity from Revelation, your anti-trinity, Leon is one of them. Nikolai is the second. And we already know the third. Mm -hmm. That's the big man. Yep. Old the big Satan. man downstairs. Old Satan himself. Yeah, old scratch. And uh, I find it kind of funny because Dwayne and Trudy, they've done this little bit a lot of places where they're not Australian. In fact, they have a German, Norwegian, and British flag just like just like in the back. Yeah, like, they just repaint the plane. Yeah. Like whenever. Which, I mean, that's a fine tactic, I guess. Yeah. So after all that, we're back to Buck. And we notice that Buck has completely changed his face. Like his facial surgery has made him unrecognizable. Put a pin in that. It's going to become relevant. Not now, but like a couple books from now. Huh. Just remember that we talked about this, about how different he looks. Okay, gotcha. 
Buck being Buck, he's itching to leave the safe house again. Like, he's just being cooped up. He's like, I'm Buck Williams, star globetrotting reporter. I can't be stuck here with a wife and a kid. (laughs) I gotta go be the Buck Williams. Just the Buck Williams, capital T. You know, he's trying to be a good dad, but he just, he can't shake the itch. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a wanderer. A book tradition. Yeah. This next place that Buck does go off to, I the only way I can describe it is, you know, like the uh, the more like country areas of the Cyberpunk 2077 map? Yeah, the Badlands. Yeah, yeah, this is there. He's going to go meet some nomads. Yeah. <laughs> he goes and meets two new characters that we have not been introduced yet. This is the point where Jerry either ran out of names or just wasn't feeling particularly creative because they're both named Zeke. Yep. Zeke and Zeke Jr. Who goes by Z. Yes, Z. They operate a gas station slash convenience store slash identity forging operation in their basement. Slash uh, auto parts repair store. Oh, that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're still kind of operating in the destroyed parts of Chicago. And this is something that they don't really remind us of in this book, but they do in some of the later ones. Chicago is a no-go zone. Really? Yeah, because uh, everybody says they're radiated. Ah. So the people that are still there are still kind of cut off from everything. Like, they don't have power. They don't have light. Everything's running on generators. They're kind of cut off and on their own. Even though no nuclear fallout was ever detected in Chicago, it's still a no-go zone. Mm -hmm. So that's why the safe house is as safe as it actually is. Let's talk about Zeke for a second, because he, specifically Zeke Jr., fits into another Christian stereotype that I am very familiar with. Yeah. Did did that catch you? Yeah, how he, uh, they describe him as being a no-account druggie who's on and off again tattooing and art, merely financed his daily high. Oh my god. Yeah, the the reformed druggie uh, trope. Yes, dude. How many of those guys came and talked to your youth group? Uh, a few. (laughs) Even the way he dresses. So I was thinking about this today as I was going over my notes. This kind of character, I don't know if they still exist on the evangelism circuit. If you do know, maybe shoot us a message and say, hey, here's an example of one that's modern. These guys were huge in like the 80s and the 90s because they were the character that was someone from the 60s or the 70s idea of what was cool. Mm -hmm. They wore leather jackets or motorcycle vests. They had long hair or ponytails and they wore jeans or chaps. They were former drug addicts or motorcycle gang guys. And they would go around witnessing about their former lives as sinners and how they've come to Christ now. Mm-hmm. It's so funny to read this and realize like, oh, Jerry and Tim are hearkening back to what like the cool outsider was when they were younger or maybe when their kids were younger, mm-hmm. you know, because like it didn't really get updated. It specifically reminded me of a guy named Mike Wernke. You ever heard of Mike Wernke? I have not. We might have to do a special episode on some of these evangelical figures, and I've got a title in mind. I'm not going to drop it here, but when we do these sort of side stories about certain evangelical figures, Wernke's got to be one. Mm -hmm. Short version, he wrote a book called The Satan Seller. He claimed to be a Satanist priest for years and years. He was a Christian comedian, and he had that same look. He was a heavyset guy, long hair, mustache. Very animated, you know, Christian comedy. You know, he was up there with like the Mark Lowry kind of guys for any of you guys who know who Mark Lowry is. 
and he claimed to have been a Satanist priest. Oh. Wrote a book about all the terrible things and human sacrifices and stuff that he did. Eventually, a magazine, I think it might have even been a Christian magazine, did an expose on him and exposed him as a complete fraud. <laughs> like, he wasn't a drug runner. He wasn't a Satanist priest. He never did any human sacrifices. And the people that he claimed to run with, like, sold him out and was like, yeah, Mike wasn't into any of that. Like, he crafted this alternate persona to go on the evangelism and Christian comedy circuit to get gigs. Oh, my God. Yeah. And he actually ended up writing another book, I think, after the expose and his career fell apart about persecution within the evangelical community against <laughs> other evangelicals. Oh, my God. You got to respect the hustle on this guy. Yeah, dude. <laughs> so when we talked about Z and the archetype that he fits, it's very similar to Wernke and guys like him. Okay. Um, because they would always talk to the youth. That was their big thing. Also, uh, they described Z as fleshy. <laughs> They use the word fleshy. I, I kind of get what they're trying to describe there. It's but that's not what, a good word yeah. to use. Don't do that. And so Buck gets a fake ID made for him by Z, who we find out that Z is scavenging IDs and global community papers off of corpses. Yeah, and there's uh, his stock has really uh, bumped up since the horseman arrived. Because he has like much more inventory now. As it's like, Buck yeah, they're out. a little burned around the edges, but I got them. <laughs> it's not a line in the book, but it could have been. Kind of get a recap as the chapter starts to end. Rehoboth is also dead. Yeah. I'm going to go ahead and spoil this because they say it a little bit later. He was taken out by GC assassins like almost as soon as Leon reported what was happening. Yeah. Like some GC special ops guys just dropped out of a helicopter and just short controlled burst like him and all of his families. Mm. Notice they say families there. They make a point to point out that Rehoboth was a polygamist. Yeah. So he has multiple wives, multiple families. I don't know if that's offensive. I don't know if that's like trying to exoticize the African potentate. I'm not sure what they're doing there. I, you know, the polygamy is like a big thing in the Bible that they do. So maybe they're, yeah, it's kind of weird that they make the African one the polygamist, but I'm not know. sure. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm reaching. Yeah. But it hit me and went, mm, okay. Mac gets out of surgery. He's, he's okay. Um, his hand is not going to work right because he did get shot through the hand. I forgot to mention that. He gets shot right through the hand. Mm -hmm. Man, hand stuff. I've been playing Resident Evil 8 and uh, that poor guy's hands. I don't know. <laughs> I've been subjected to a lot of, uh, of hand mutilation. <laughs> but we find out, like I said earlier, Mac and Abdullah are going to be hailed as heroes and being given the Golden Circle Award for bravery. Oh, good for I them. couldn't find anything about like Golden Circle or anything like occult or like esoteric literature. Is that anything? The only thing that's coming to mind is like they just made an Ouroboros gold. Maybe. Yeah, I, I did a little look at it and I couldn't find anything as a specific occult reference, but I thought that might be one. Mm -hmm. At the end of the chapter, David and Annie decide to bring their relationship forward to their GC superiors and get Annie reassigned. Yes. So they're like, nope, we are in love. We are a couple. We are together. As you said before, so far, the most healthy, developed, positive example of a romantic relationship in this series remains David and Annie. Yep. They are my OTP of the Left Behind series. I am pulling for these kids. <laughs> and we end with a little tiff between Leon and Peter. 
because Leon pulls a Carpathia-style fast one with thanks for the plane you're going to give me. Yeah, yeah, they, uh, <laughs> that we hearken back to Fitzhugh. They take the insurrection guy's plane. Yeah, man, it feels like forever ago. All right, so into chapter 12. Boy, oh boy. Oh, here we go. Leon and Nikolai have a long meeting at the beginning of this chapter. And it's kind of stage setting, but mm -hmm. it's very important stage setting. Leon is talking to Nikolai, and Nikolai is starting to act out of character. Yeah. I would say manic. Yeah. Almost. I would, I would say so as well. And he's just like, I, I want like everything that we got about um, Eli and Moisha, pull up from Nostradamus, ancient holy writings, anything that you can do to find the vulnerability of those two, like bring it out. These guys need to die. Yeah, and he's like, and I'm going to be the one to do it. Mm -hmm. Because now Matthews is saying to other people around Carpathia, again, Carpathia is weak. I'm going to take these guys out. Mm -hmm. And Carpathia is like, no, nah, I don't think so. So Carpathia is planning a huge gala, and he's basically putting Leon in charge of it, in Israel to celebrate the halfway point of the treaty, which, as we all know, is the halfway point of the tribulation. So the action of the story, once again, moving back to Israel, not for the last time. I just want to say something about this scene real quick. I've dubbed this, like, the Yowie fan service <laughs> scene because Leon is just, like, he is simping hard for Nikolai Carpathia to a degree that we have not seen yet. Carpathia senpai. Carpathia, you, like, uh, I, I, I love you so much. You're, you're my god, my leader, my everything. Every moment of this scene is just, like, Leon on his hands and knees going, like, how can I serve you best, my master? Yeah, he's making... Nikolai fan cams. Yeah. That's all Leon's TikTok is, is Nikolai fan cam. <laughs> we have another callback to Peter mm -hmm. where he asks Leon, who do you say that I am? More reinforcement of Leon as the apostle Peter, you know, upon this rock, I will build my church mm -hmm. for Nikolai, for the Antichrist. One of the things that's interesting that Nikolai says here is let us recommit ourselves to the global community. Yeah. Did you ever, when you were growing up, have the talk about recommitting yourself to Christ? Uh, yeah, that kind of in one form or fashion came around. Yeah, because it's kind of like a renewal of the vows because the church is the bride of Christ. And so you have to recommit your life to him. You start falling away in the faith. You recommit yourself to it. Yeah, I'd say the, the time I got baptized again was around the time that this kind of happened. Same. Yeah. yeah, you've been baptized multiple times yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You gotta get dunked a couple times or else you're not really trying. <laughs> so I think that that's relevant considering the fact that earlier he said, keep the faith. Yes. So as we go forward in the story, more and more Nikolai is dropping Christian terminology mm -hmm. into his rhetoric. Like he's saying things that would resonate as church talk. Yes. You guys can figure out where this is going from here if that's what he's doing. Mm -hmm. He's really consolidating his power. He's fully planning to take out Matthews to the point where he even tells Leon, all right, listen, I need you to make Matthews think that you're going to turn on me. What, turn on you? I would never do that. No, 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 it's, it's just a bit. It's just a bit, Leon. I, I guess. <laughs> Leon, we're doing a bit. Like, I need you to, sometimes we play pretend. <laughs> and he has to like spell it out for him. <laughs> and Leon's just like, no, I don't want to. I can't even ingest say these words. You're, uh, I love you. <laughs> so bad. One of my favorite lines of this section is, can you read the passage where Leon and Carpathia end the conversation and the last thing that Leon says to yep. Nikolai and then his response? Yeah, I'll read from, can you do it, Leon? I'll try. 
I have every confidence in you. Within four months, we will consolidate all power and authority and render opposition moot. Just the thought of it energizes me. Go now, friend. Hesitate to ask for nothing. All my... Our... Resources are at your disposal. Thank you, Excellency. Thank you for the privilege of serving you. What a nice thing to say. That's a badass line. Yeah. Because you can still tell that Nikolai doesn't give a f about him. Yeah. It's not a, like, hand on the shoulder, like, my good friend. It's, what a nice thing to say. <laughs> like, that's a really good line, Jerry. Yeah. Like, I really appreciated that, that it just shows how cold and unfeeling and, like, just completely, that Nikolai is kind of a sociopath. Like, he really doesn't care yeah. about anyone else, which Hattie has already told us, mm -hmm. but... An interesting moment of show don't tell that yeah. we get from Jerry, which is rare. Oh man. Before we go into this next bit, I wanna say that like just as you were pumping yourself up for the the murder scorpions to kind of like sell us on this podcast, this next bit that you told me about before we did the podcast was one of the the ones. I'm like, oh, they put that in there? All right, I gotta see this. Let's do this. You uh, you wanna you wanna lead us into what happens here? So this is the moment where we learn that Nikolai Carpathia is a man of faith, and not pluralistic universalist faith like Enigma Babylon. No, no, no. He has a very specific deity that he prays directly to. And I would like to request the honor of getting to read this passage because, like I said, just like the murder scorpions, this is one that I told you. And I could not remember what book it was in until now. Yep, start right there. He heard the squeak of Nikolai's chair, and then perhaps it rolled. Finally, he heard the potentate whispering, O Lucifer, son of the morning, I have worshipped you since childhood. How grateful I am for the creativity you imbue, O lion of glory, angel of light. I praise you for imaginative ideas that never cease to amaze me. You have given me the nations. You have promised that I shall ascend into heaven with you, that we will exalt our thrones above the stars of God. I rest in your promise that I will one day ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I shall do all your bidding so I may claim your promises to rule the universe by your side. You have chosen me and allowed me to make the earth tremble and shake kingdoms. Your glory will be my glory, and like unto you, I will never die. I eagerly await the day when I will make plain your power and majesty. That is the most metal moment. The literal prayer to Satan is the most metal moment in the entire series so far. And I am just... <laughs> so when I say Nikolai is my favorite character, I think that is my favorite Nikolai moment. That's another one that stuck with me. Yeah. Because being a little middle schooler in Christian school and in church, hearing a dude literally do an eloquent prayer to Satan, something awoke. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. It did not have the intended effect. I think yeah. that Jerry meant for it to have. I just remember being like, okay. <laughs> uh-huh. That's awesome. <laughs> and like he even goes, like he's worshipped Lucifer since his childhood. So maybe like that's uh that ties into some of like the prequels. We it could... does. Oh, nice. So because I've never read the prequels, but I did a little plot summary searching. It does. Okay. Heck so, yeah. So so that's a little seed there. I don't think they were planning on making prequels at that point. 
Mm-hmm. I think they were trying to get done with the mainline series, but yes, defo prequel stuff in there. Okay. That's the Obi-Wan talking about the Clone Wars. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> you know, like it's a throwaway thing that then they're like, oh, we could build a prequel around this. <laughs> All right. So after that extremely awesome moment, we are back with Ray. So Ray is going to meet with Beauregard Hansen, who is still in the story. Mm hmm to get Hattie's location out of him because Bo's his only lead and he's planning to bribe him with Leah's cash. Yeah. Ray just sort of swoops in and was like, thanks for the money, lady. Mine now. <laughs> and Leah's like not loving it. Like, yeah, she's like, you haven't even checked in on me and you come and be like, hey, can I have some money? Yeah, and what you think is going to be her rebuking Ray, mm-hmm. but she does it really for the right reasons. She says some stuff like, you people here are too politically correct. You won't even let me cook and clean. Don't you know I'm a lady and that's what I'm supposed to do? Said the female character written by dudes. <laughs> and I just wrote, oh, okay, neat. I'm sorry, the tribulation force full of evangelicals are too politically correct. Yeah. Right. That's a thing that definitely happens. And then, like, she also is kind of appealing to him at the same time, like, trying to get through to him and trying to be like, hey, let me in to kind of your life. Like, we can be buds. Ray, you're a wonderful man. Like, she turns on a dime from insulting him to being like, you're a wonderful man. I just wrote, what is this scene? What is happening? Actually, do you have any of that highlighted? Let's see. Uh, I donate my husband's and my entire life savings to the tribulation force, and you treat me like an intruder. That's remiss. Yeah, she really gives him a hard time, and then immediately turns. Like, it's weird. So in the midst of his planning, Ray decides he needs to talk to Albie, Mm -hmm. which we haven't seen Albie in a minute. He's the dealer, the black market dealer from Soul Harvest. Yes. Buck is going to set out for Israel. He's going to see Haim, because they wanted somebody to go check in on Haim. And he's on the plane. It's a very weird scene with the lady and the baby. Oh, yeah, the baby scene. The baby scene. It's very weird because Buck's on the plane and there's a uh, there's a lady there. There's an Asian lady. She doesn't speak great English, but she has a young baby with her. And Buck's like, can I hold your baby? No, I, I keep. <laughs> no, no, I don't. No, no strange man. Uh, <laughs> and he's like, good call. I wouldn't let a stranger hold my baby either. He's like, oh, you have a baby. Okay. That, that was a test, lady. You passed. Congratulations. It's so weird. But then he lands in Israel to surprise Hayam, only to learn that Jonas, the gate guard, has died. Rest in peace, Jonas. Yeah, rest in peace, Jonas. Um, He did convert, mm-hmm. which we found out last book, but he has passed away. We find out why in a little bit. Yeah. Um, so we're into chapter 13. Ray meets T and Bo at the airport. And man, Bo is something else, huh? He's one of the more broadly drawn caricatures, I think, Yeah, in, in the series so far. He's just rich, dumb kid. Yeah, the whole joke in Jerry B. Jenkins' notes, when it, when it has Beauregard Hansen, the, the character note is just, he's dumb. Yeah, dumb. Just dumb. <laughs> no thought, head empty, only money. Ray proceeds to kind of shake Bo down a yeah. little bit, like pull a fast one on him. He, he tricks Bo. And where, like, he's trying to get information out of him because Bo is not budging. And he's like, see what I got right here? Got a bag full of cash. Is that gonna, that gonna loosen you up? And he's like, I don't know, maybe. And so he just starts putting cash on the table to get information from him. And then goes, up, 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 but if you don't tell me exactly where she is, all of this cash goes away. Uh, this goes on for a bit until he's just like, hey, uh, even if, uh, I take away all this cash. Who are you going to tell, buddy, that uh, you're being extorted? Like, what? You're going to tattle on me because yeah. um, you helped fake the death of the potentate's former girlfriend? You're going to tell him that? Because that's uh, that's fraud, buddy. 
Yeah. So you'd be incriminating yourself too. And so he's got Bo backed into a corner. Bo lets out another amazing insult. It's, he's like, you can't do this to me. You, uh, you stupid guy. That, that, it's amazing. It's almost as good as sissy boy from the last one. Right. And then Bo, uh, after this whole meeting, after Ray takes away all the money and is like, all right, scram. He goes outside, slams uh, his car like into full throttle. And then after he spins out, he runs out of gas after the gate. And I almost thought that like Ray like siphoned the gas out of his tank so he couldn't run. Hmm. They, they never yeah. confirmed that. But when I first reread it, I was like, oh, did he siphon the gas out of his tank? Something that we're seeing here, and I'm going to talk about it in a later chapter in this episode, Ray is slipping. Yeah. And we talked about it in episode one. He's starting to do a lot of things that would compromise what is set up as his morality so that I wouldn't put it past him to, like, siphon the gas out of somebody's tank to, like, keep them hostage. <laughs> That's our end of the bow scene is he gives Ray the information that he needs. Ray now has a destination somewhere in France, I think. And that's where he's headed. We're back to Buck. We find out that Jonas actually died due to collateral damage from the horsemen, not the horsemen themselves. Yes. Uh, it was a car accident because the driver was murdered by the horsemen. So Hyam, of course, happy to see Buck. He is now driving around the house in a power chair. Yeah. Hyam is a different person since the sting. He has started to deteriorate. He is worried that he is going to have a stroke. He is researching strokes all the time. Yeah, a friend of his had a stroke, so that's also something that's spurring that on as well. Yeah, it's a little weird. Yeah. He's getting up there in age. He's taken to locking himself inside of his workshop, and all that they can hear is metal filing, just filing and filing and filing. He's getting around the house in a power chair. Like, he can kind of walk, but he's really more comfortable in the chair. Like, Hyam is really deteriorating. So yeah. It's, it's kind of sad to see. And it's also odd because he's never been like a guy that worked with his hands. He's always been more intellectual and stuff like that. So the fact that he's making something in private is raising alarm bells for everyone else. Is like, what's this dude making? Yeah, Yakov's like, I mean, we don't know. Like, we're not sure what he's doing here. Now, remember that now Hayam is the only non-believer in the house because mm -hmm. the whole house staff are believers now. Constantly getting reminded. But he also lets slip that Hyam's opinion of Nikolai has severely diminished. Yeah. He feels like Israel has been betrayed by Nikolai, that Nikolai is not protecting them as he said he would, mm -hmm. and is in fact not even returning his calls. Hmm. So a little bit of trouble in paradise for uh, old Nikolai and Hyam. So as we close out the chapter, we get another update that Nikolai is now claiming that Zion is on the same level as the witnesses, and they're all in cahoots causing the deaths from the horsemen. Mm -hmm. That it's chemical warfare, or germ warfare, I think is what he calls it. We get another Annie and David scene of them listening in on Matthews and Leon talking about Carpathia, and that's when Leon does his masterstroke. Matthews starts to ask Leon, like, oh, he's your god, huh? He's your incarnated god? Well, why isn't he stopping all these terrible things from happening? And to keep his loyalty to Nikolai up, Leon doesn't agree with him. He hesitates. Ah. Which is really clever. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a good move. Like, that's a good, like, you know, little Game of Thrones movie pulled there. He just sort of hesitates. He's like, um, um, and lets Matthews fill in the blanks. He's ah. like, ah, I see, Leon, your faith's wavering. Listen, you should come join me. Come join my side. You want to be on the winning team, don't you? That's where we find out for certain that Matthews is going to make a play to kill the witnesses. Yes. And that's going to take us into chapter 14. We got two more chapters, and then we are done for this episode. So 
we learn a little bit about Buck Williams magazine, The Truth. The No Spin Zone. There's a line in here that I thought you would like oh, from The God. Truth. You want to read it? Yeah. Buck urged his readers, keep your copy of Global Community Weekly, the finest example of newspeak since the term was coined. I just wrote, Ugh. As we've discussed previously, newspeak and propaganda are not synonymous. Yeah, I mean, I guess what they're trying to do with newspeak is saying like, hey, all news has to pass through like a filter. The message gets changed. But that, that's not that's not newspeak. Yeah. I found this next part incredibly boring. It's a lot of techno babble about all the magic computer stuff that oh, David Oh, God, can yeah, do. this. It's really boring. Like, it's just babble, and it doesn't really equate to anything that actually works within, like, IT. Drops a lot of buzzwords, and that doesn't stop. Like, either it's going to be David or it's going to be other characters that are IT-minded. They just kind of keep this going yeah, for like, the rest well, of the series. Well, if we, like, duplicate the calculations and put it through, like, a spin filter, we can get, like, the hypotenuse of the, the calculation again. Yeah, they run it through the flux capacitor, and um, <laughs> they defrag the warp drive. What they're doing with all this technobabble is to essentially say, David's job is to hunt down Buck through the internet. Mm-hmm. And he's putting failure points inside of the programs that the GC are running to make them not work. Ah, uh, okay. To make them not work, but also make it not work in a way that won't be traceable back to him. Mm -hmm. We get a Global Community Weekly recap of the fight on the runway. They just sort of scrub all the supernatural stuff out of it. We do find out that Ngumo was pretty butthurt when uh, he stepped down from his position in the UN in the first book mm -hmm. because he was promised that Botswana was going to get the formula. They didn't. And that he was going to be the ambassador. He wasn't. So he's kind of wounded by Carpathia in that sense. It's kind of surprising that they wrote it that way and Ngumo is not behind the assassination. Like you would think if anybody was going to do it, it was going to be him. But no, it's confirmed both through Buck's Truth Magazine and through GCW that Rehoboth was behind it. Yeah which seemed like a wasted opportunity. Like, you kind of have spurned and Gumo. Why don't you have him do it? It's just a weird choice. Mm -hmm. And then we find out that uh, David is going to be in charge of tricking out the new 216, which is Matthew's plane, the Phoenix 216. Which is pretty cool. Because it rises from the molten slag <laughs> of the, the old condor. One. Yeah. So he and Annie are going to go in there and install new bugs. They're going to also sabotage the metal detectors oh. so david is actually also trying to kill carpathia in an indirect way mm -hmm. so we have another trip force member who is trying to participate in the assassination and all these assassins so many assassins oops all assassins <laughs> we are back to ray and t this is a moment that actually was really important for me okay for one of the first times in the series i think jerry and tim to an extent are listening to some of the more level-headed criticism that I think the series has gotten. And I say that to say that T essentially rebukes Ray. Yeah. For behaving in an unchrist-like way toward Bo, from being deceitful and manipulative and using him, basically driving a potential convert away from the kingdom by treating him badly. Yeah sinning against Bo because what he did was shitty. yeah T basically is like dude your paranoia is getting to you you are looking at everyone as the enemy 
Like, you need to get out of this us versus them mentality, which I did not see this coming. Yeah, I didn't either, but I really liked this moment from T for this very reason. He's like, what, what, are, you, what are you trying to do, Ray? You're going to, like, scam a guy out of money and lie to him to get information. And for what? This guy's just going to be even more damned now because he, he won't have people to turn to. Yeah, he says, we're here to save souls. We don't lie. We don't cheat. We don't blackmail people. We love people. That was a breath of fresh air. Yes. For me. I was like, oh my God, they said it. They actually said it. And I'm not going to give them enough credit to say that they were planning this all along. I truly do think this many books in, it's a response to criticism. Yes. Because, you know, you and I have talked many times about the criticism that these novels received. I don't think it necessarily sticks 100%. I will say, as we go forward, there is a little bit of a tone change in some of the negative aspects of the book we've been talking about. Okay. And I will give them that as we go forward. So, you know, it's a few books out. Gotcha. But in an act of kind of walking his talk, T leaves the tower, he goes down, and he helps fill Bo's car with gas. Yeah. Be be a really good guy about it. Mm -hmm. More specifically, later when he comes back, Ray actually tries to lay into him. He's like, you're helping the enemy. And he's like, he's not the enemy, man. Calm down. He's just a dude that ha his car ran out of gas. He's just a dumb kid whose car ran out of gas. Lay off. So we're back to Buck. Buck finally sees Hyam. They have a little conversation about Hyam's reservations about coming to Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have that highlighted? Uh, let's see. And yet, that makes no sense, does it? Why should I be unwilling? I want it to be true. What a story, an answer to this madness, relief from the cruelty. Ah, Cameron, I'm closer than you think. That's what you said last time. I fear you will wait too long. My house staff are all believers now, you know. Yakov, his wife, her mother, Stefan, Jonas too, but we lost him, you heard? You see, Cameron, these are the things I don't understand. If God is personal like you say, cares about his children, and is all-powerful, is there not a better way? Why the judgments, the plagues, the destruction, the death? Zion says we had our chance, so now it's no more Mr. Nice Guy? There's a cruelty about it that hides the love I am supposed to see. Yes. Yeah. I yes, Hyam, you are correct. <laughs> there is a cruelty about it, and that's one thing that doesn't change. We talked about the seeds being planted for positive change with Ray, not so much with God, because there is still that cruelty, and that's one circle that I'll never be able to square. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I'm sure you probably feel similarly. Yeah, I do. That you just can't make those two ideas coexist. Like, God cannot be cruel and at the same time all loving. Mm -hmm. It just, it doesn't work. So, wrapping up, we get to the end of the chapter. Zion actually messages David personally. I think this is the first time that these two characters have interacted at all. Mm -hmm. And what Zion is asking him is to provide intel to Ray on Hattie. So, Zion is doing a weird kind of earthly interceding on Ray's behalf. He's like, look, my friend Rayford is running into a situation that I think he's going to be in trouble. Mm -hmm. And David also puts two and two together and says, Oh, yeah, he's walking into a trap. So immediately he runs to Annie and is like, I, I don't know what to do. I don't have any information on this. I've looked for Hattie. I've combed all the databases, more techno babble about everything he did to look for it, but there's no information. Annie kind of looks at him and she's like, you have the perfect line to the guy who knows probably the most, except for maybe Carpathia, and you know how to push his buttons. 
just do that. Just sort of sweet talk it out of Leon. He loves you. <laughs> David goes, you know what? That's a great idea. Now, I want to point out as we end the chapter, Ray's walking into a trap with Hattie being a global community hostage, potentially. The second time she's been used for that. Yeah. Second time Hattie's been bait. I think I've even described her uh, off mic as like they're they're kind of setting her up like a Daphne figure. Oh yeah, she's she's <laughs> she's Daphne from Scooby Doo. Yeah, she's just barely missing that ghost hand that reaches out and tries to grab her <laughs> in the original Scooby Doo Where Are You intro. Yeah. All right, so we're gonna close out on chapter fifteen. Ray takes off from Powaki with the Tuttles. So the Tuttles have volunteered to fly him to Europe to go get Hattie, and we learn a little bit about the Tuttles. Their kids were raptured and they weren't. Ah, that is a unique story that we've heard so far. We're kind of doing all the remixes of the Christian testimonies. My kids were saved and I wasn't, I think is a new one. I think so as well. Where they don't at least lose a spouse, but just kids this time. Yeah. So we learned that Dwayne is an amateur actor. Oh, That's yeah, where yeah, yeah. all the accents come from. He was always on the acting side since college. He specialized in voices. Oh, he's a voice guy. Everybody knows those guys. Yeah. A lot of them are podcasters. Calling me out, Shane. Calling me out. I'm done to self-report, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> and like I said earlier, I find Dwayne to be a really annoying character, and I'm going to tell you why. Okay. Can you read some of Dwayne's dialogue and read it, like, at the manic speed that we feel like Dwayne is speaking? Let's see. Point me out a line here. Let's see. A deaf turtle could fool a boy, Rafe. You don't mind if I call you Rafe, do you? I just like to find sh shortcuts so I can get more words in in a shorter time. Ha ha, just kidding, but you don't mind, do you? My first wife called me that. She was raptured. Well, then maybe you'd rather not... Uh, no, it's all right. Anyway, Rafe, I'm a gregarious guy. I guess you figured. Salesman it has to be, but I always put a lot of my theater training into it. I was always known as a straightforward, opinionated guy, and, and people much liked me, unless they were too, was too sophisticated. If they was, I'd use the word was when I was supposed to use were, like I just did just there, tweak them to death. So I'm this friendly, confident, outgoing guy who... Trudy goes, loud's the word you're looking for there, hon. Yeah, man. Okay, so... Did you know any of these guys in church? Like, they were always, like, your one friend's dad. Yeah. Who was, like, the funny guy around the church. Uh, yeah. And, like, nothing personal. Like, I can't think of any specific examples because I knew, like, ten of these guys over the years. And they were always just, like, so grating. Yeah. But they were always salesmen. Yeah. You know that salesman feel? Like, that guy? Mm -hmm. Like, my dad worked with these guys. Like, it's a very specific generational type of gregarious guy that just feels very off yeah and so i find Dwayne incredibly annoying just not a big fan back to Hyam. Hyam agrees to show buck his project yeah because uh in the last chapter we didn't cover it but but it's like what are you working on he's like um projects you gonna show them to me nice weather outside <laughs> <laughs> he's like look cameron cameron if it'll make you trust me more and make you understand that i am on your side and that i'm saying i'll show you my project so he takes him into the workshop and what does he find he's got a katana being made <laughs> he's making a katana <laughs> now is it exactly a katana not really but it is Hyam is trying to, what does he say? The sharpest blade ever fashioned by human hands? Yeah, like it's so sharp that you can't even see it unless you look at it under a magnifying glass, how like razor thin this is. Oh my God. So it's supposed to be a three foot carbon steel blade that he has just been filing and filing and filing. And it doesn't really factor in like material strength and physics and all that because apparently you can just drop 
like a fruit on it and it like just gets cut in half with like no sign of resistance. And I it, look, knives and blades can be very sharp, but this is very silly. Yes. I just wrote, hi, I'm studied the blade. <laughs> While everyone was writhing in pain from murder scorpions, hi, I'm studied the blade. <laughs> He even does a weird thing because they specifically have him drop a rag on it, but it's one of those crusty rags that's like been balled up and it's kind of solid. Uh, you know exactly? Yeah. Like a shop rag mm-hmm. that's got oil on it or something that's evaporated or like dirt that's evaporated, which I thought was really gross. So we leave Hyam the swordsmith to have David meet with Leon and enact his plan. Leon takes David into his confidence and says, oh, now you understand that Ms. Durham was trying to extort the potentate. She was asking for money. <laughs> Women, am I right? <laughs> and David just plays him like a stringed instrument. He does a great job here. Leon just overshares, immediately goes into, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was no plane crash. They landed and uh, we shot the pilot. Miss Durham is in our custody. Mm-hmm. Not in France, mind you. She's in Brussels. We yeah. took her over to Belgium. She's in a this secure f- facility where she's being charged with a false report of a death. Which is, you know, like... Everything under the global community, a crime. Yeah. And then David immediately is like, oh, no, I got to tell Ray they're walking into a trap. It's a trap. (laughs) And then as we start to close the chapter out, we go from one very silly weapon to another. The gun. The gun. Ray finally gets to call up Albie. I wrote something here that just says, Dwayne, please shut up. (laughs) I don't remember what the line was. Uh, Hold on. The number was ringing when Dwayne noticed the equipment. Now that there's what I call a phone. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, sir. That's a phone and a half. I'll bet that's got whistles and bells I've never even heard of. And Dwayne, shut up. Oh, he's the worst. So he reaches out to Albie, who really came through with the equipment last time with the scuba equipment. So he's like, look, Albie, I need a gun. What kind of gun you need? The kind of gun that can uh, get through metal detectors. Now he's like, go on. Mm-hmm. What are you buying? <laughs> and the gun that ends up pitched to him is one that is made of wood and plastic. It fires about two rounds, maybe three, before it disintegrates, and it has really limited range, no kill power past about 20 feet. If this was written today, it would be a 3D-printed gun. Yeah, 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 that's what I was thinking <laughs> as well. Yeah, totally. Um, So Ray can't go for that. He's like, nah, I need at least 30 yards or more. Mm-hmm. And then Alvy's like, I got just the thing. Now... Albie knows. Like, Albie's not stupid. He's a great character. He knows exactly what Ray's trying to do, and he supports it, even though he's not a believer. Because remember, Albie is a devout Muslim who also thinks Enigma Babylon is heresy. Yes. He is 100% on board with anything to stick it to the GC, especially Ray's plan. Ray doesn't even have to say it out loud. Albie's like, no, I got you. I got the gun for you, buddy. And it fits inside of what essentially looks like a computer battery or a suitcase, like a very small briefcase. He's like, look, it's going to be expensive, thousands of dollars, but I can get it for you. Can you read me the specs on this firearm, Gavin? Let's see. So it's starting like right here. Mr. Steele, I have access to just the weapon. It is roughly the size of your hand. Heavy, thus accurate. Weight is due to the firing mechanism, which is normally used in oversized, high-powered rifles. What kind of action? Unique. It employs both fuel injection and hydraulic vacuum. Sounds like an engine. I've never heard of such a thing. Who has? It propels a projectile at 2,000 miles per hour. Ammunition? 48 caliber. High speed. Naturally. Soft tip. Hollow point. 
In a handgun? Mr. Steel. The air displacement caused by the spinning of the bullet alone has been known to sever human tissue from two inches away. I don't follow. A man was fired at with one of these pistols from approximately 30 feet away. The shot tore through his skin and damaged subcutaneous tissue in his upper arm. Doctors later determined that there were zero traces of metal in the tissue. The damage had been done by the speed with which the air around the spinning bullet was displaced. Oh my god. <laughs> All right. Yeah, break down uh break down this gun chain. Okay, so <laughs> Okay, so I had to call in some backup on this one. I'm a little bit out of my depth. I know guns a little, like enough to go, all right, this is next level dumb. Mm -hmm. So I've had to call in my resident gun guy, my buddy Jason, who is joining us on the podcast to say a few words about this magic gun <laughs> that Ray is going to be holding on to. Let me check the back of the book here. <laughs> uh, no, right. I don't see Mike Pondsmith's name because that is the <laughs> most cyberpunk gun I've ever heard of. <laughs> Okay, in a book where we have to suspend our disbelief, you know, regardless of whether, you know, we're familiar with revelations or not, in a story where we have prayers to Satan that are, you know, more metal than a Black Dahlia murder song, and, <laughs> and metal scorpions that, that speak in demonic tongues, this point of the story was where I went, what? <laughs> All right, so what about this gun? Because you know way more about guns than I do. What about this gun stands out as the most unrealistic or the that is impossible? Well, the multiple projectile systems that they've got running it, when that was written, that technology was nowhere near even being thought of. In 2021, that technology might exist in what we like to refer to as a rail gun. <laughs> the fact that this is a about the size of your hand, it must weigh 800 pounds. All right, what's the recoil going to be like on a gun like that? Because it's you not a recoilless weapon. Okay, again, I'm going to reference Cyberpunk because <laughs> a gun like that in Cyberpunk, you need a cybernetic arm or it'll blow your arm out of socket. <laughs> There's no way that the recoil of that gun, anybody that could absorb that and live, like it wouldn't just rip your arm out of socket. If you kept your arm on that gun, it would take your arm off. Okay, so is the speed of the projectile something akin to like a 50 caliber sniper rifle yes. or something? Okay. If you watch videos of uh, people shooting a 50 cal, the air displacement will mess somebody up. It'll, it'll mess up anything around okay, it. Okay, so that is real. That's absolutely real. But it's also in a high, high powered rifle. Not something that will burn the bomb of your hand. <laughs> I don't know who got him to describe a gun to them, but he, they did it badly. Okay, what about the spinning of the bullet, like the tumbling of the bullet? Is that a thing that actually happens, and does that, like, impact your accuracy or what? Okay, well, all right, yes and no. Like, it'll flatten out, like, especially, like, a hollow point will flatten out as it is displaced, you know, like, through the air. It will not turn into a disc. <laughs> I don't, like, it, like, guns don't spin to turn into a disc that basically just slices through like a Kurosawa movie. Yeah, and I forgot to mention that they do bring that up later, that basically the bullet goes soft and turns into a spinning disc as it flies. A spinning disc. I think that maybe they went to Walmart and got a Nerf blaster, <laughs> and it was the disc blaster, and then they were like, that's close enough. <laughs> if a gun like this did exist, it would be stupidly heavy, 
your arm couldn't absorb the recoil. Correct. It would be inaccurate. Correct. And it would be probably impossibly loud. Uh, yeah, there'd be no way that it wouldn't, you know, deafen someone. Considering the multiple propulsion systems that it's got in that small gun. What would even be the point of a multiple propulsion system, though? Like, would that even be workable, or is that just, like, some sci-fi flair that, that they, they tacked they, on? They, like, gussied that one up. That's, <laughs> that's all you can say to that one. I mean, they're like, all right, well, in a story where we're, you know, talking about the devil coming back and revelations in the last <laughs> days... Let's make up a gun that could never exist in the real world. That's that's all that was. That's my impression of Jerry B. <laughs> Tim LaHaye there. All right. Well, cool. So now now we know the sort of Mythbusters science behind why that gun would not work. Jay, thanks for coming on and explaining that to because I could have never explained the gun science of that. Well, I just more made fun of it. You're welcome. <laughs> You're absolutely welcome. All right. Thanks, bud. Yeah. All right. So after the discussion of the weapon itself, that's where we're going to close out on yet another Dark Ray moment. Mm -hmm. Because as soon as he hangs up, of course, Dwayne was eavesdropping. Yeah. And he asks, like, what's the gun for? And Ray just sort of casually goes, self-defense. And that'll take us out of the chapter. And uh, that's going to do it for us, I think, yep. on this section and this episode of I Survived the Rapture. The board is set. The pieces are moving. Here we go. <laughs> we're almost halfway through. We got one more episode and we're hitting halftime. Heck yeah. So thank you guys for joining us on this episode of I Survived the Rapture. I'm Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. And until next time, uh, get a real gun. Bye. Okay, that's our show. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Rapture Podcast. I Survived the Rapture is part of the IndieSource Podcast Network. For more great shows and to join the conversation, please visit IndieSource.com and check out the IndieSource Discord. We'll see you there, and thanks for listening. He can help you and leave.